Welcome all you nature nerds. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back. I'm Megan. And I'm Jen. Welcome back, nature nerds, for this next episode Mm -hmm. of some sort of survival or crazy nature tale. Uh, Real quick, Jen, I wanted to talk about the story that I told you and everybody about Angela Hernandez. I probably cut this part because I really sucked at research for the beginning part about Big Sur. But you were like, hey, but what it, What was the original name of Big Sur? And I was like, oh, right. You're like, no. And I was like, oh, you're right. Yeah, because Spanish. Yeah. The, those are the conquistadors. Yes. Yeah, I did find the original name the native peoples of that area had. Okay. So actually, there was this article in CNN.com. After 250 years, Native American tribe regains ownership of Big Sur ancestral lands. Wow, nice. Yeah. Yeah, so a Northern California Indian tribe um, has the, uh, I guess through a conservancy group, has their ownership over Big Sur again. It's the Esselen tribe. I hope I'm saying that right. E-S-S-E-L-E-N. And it's one of the state's smallest and least well-known tribes. They inhabited the San Lucia Mountains and the Big Sur coast for thousands of years. Their land was taken from them by Spanish explorers Hmm. who then named it, you know, the the Spanish version, which eventually became Big Sur. Right. Uh, They didn't say the name of the area that the tribe had named it, but Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to throw that out there that, yeah, that's kind of a big deal. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of that tribe. But good on them. I'm glad they got some freaking land back. Exactly. That's great. At the end of our story, we always talk about irrelevant conservation or some other kind of group that's mm-hmm. supporting maybe local indigenous tribes or doing some sort of conservation. And so we want to have a page that you can see it all in one place. And that way, if you felt the desire to go and donate to one, you can. Yeah. But some of the episodes we have like multiple. So mm-hmm. we'll put them all on there. And just so you know, if you feel the desire to become a patron or support this podcast in some other way, we also then in turn support these organizations. organizations so. Yes. So it all goes to a good cause in the end. Yeah. Anyway, I wanted to say too that, well, I think week before last. Yeah. Respect. Respect for chickens. Respect month. for chickens month in May. And I posted some chicken stuff and we got so many likes. And I just want to say like there's so many chicken people out there. And what? I just yeah. think it's amazing. What is that? The, how many Catterday posts have we done? And you guys don't support the Catterday? What's going on? And it's like one chicken post and like 50 people in like two minutes were like, oh my God, this is great. Chickens. Look, chickens are amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I put that <clears throat> post up and every Everybody just liked it like crazy. So I'm pretty yeah. sure I'm going to do an episode on chickens. I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. I can't. I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of some sort of like when nature. Chicken, when chickens attack. <laughs> when chickens attack or some sort of survival story with chickens. But there's got to be one. Hey, if you're listening right now and you know a good chicken story, send it my way. So I just want to say I appreciate all the chicken people out there. I feel like you're a part of my tribe. I'm part of your tribe, whatever. We mm-hmm. are chicken people. And I will continue. Now I'm just going to put chicken posts up all the time. Oh, my God. Because I just know that it's going to be a thing. Like, Catterday, what about, like... Chicken Tuesday? Excellent every other 
Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how somebody like wrote back with like a, a pun. A, a pun. And yeah. I was like, I will pun you right back, sir. Yes. And I did. We do love the puns. We if you love- haven't noticed, we've been trying to do like a little bit of a, you know, like what is it? Sunday pun day. Yep. Yep. We've yeah. been doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm all over that. Can I love it. Up. I've decided that I'm I'm the pun. You're very good at it. I have the two of us. Ever since I the... I feel like I'm the, the pun queen. Yeah, ever since the whale, whale, whale. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Oh, that was good. And you posted the bear one, and I was like, you should have put, like, bear with us. Yeah, and I was like, what? Yeah, missed it. Know. It just flew right past you, but it's okay. It's like, listen, Jen, I gotta go take a nap. Did you have any more things to add for your last story or any more other corrections? Oh, I did have something. This is like way back uh, on the elephant episode. Oh. I totally meant to plug this. And my pipetter friend, Christine, reminded mm-hmm. me there is this girl in Honolulu and she has an Instagram. Fuck, why didn't I pull this up? Like, Just so you all know, it is late. At, it's like nine o'clock, which is like 30 minutes past Megan's bedtime. Bear with us. Okay, yeah, there's this girl in Honolulu. Christine knows her, I don't know, through her mom or whatever. And she has a, she got super interested in elephants uh-huh. and helping elephants. And she started this nonprofit. She, I think when she was like really young, so like, I don't know, seven or Christine's going to be like, no, she was like 10 or 11 or something. Right. But still, um, but very young. Yeah, very young. Her name is Taya McGill, M-E-G-I-L-L. She's also met Jane Goodall. <gasps> yeah. I remember she made a post about it. Um, so you guys should go follow her at elephant.ade. So elephant aid. And she, at the time, so this was, I think, 2017. A-D-E? A-D-E. Not like, like lemonade. Oh, Because I think originally it, it. when she came up with this idea, it was like she made a, an, a lemonade stand that to sell so these bracelets cute. to help elephants it's super cute and i bought a bracelet and it has just like a little elephant charm on it i don't know if she's still making those or if there's something else that she's doing she's great she's great and it's a super cute page and she's super into conservation and she's so young and you guys should go and support her in this dream that she has to save elephants it's wonderful so she makes money from making bracelets and then t-shirts and then donates it to conservation societies for oh that that help preserve like save elephants wow i know that's amazing um and she looks like she might be like 13 mm-hmm. we can add her to our page uh with mm. our elephant stuff we can put her on there so if you go to our page you'll well it'll be there yeah that is such that is such a neat thing yeah i'm glad that christine reminded she was like hey and i and i actually had written it down like oh i need to talk about this because she's in honolulu and our story about Tyke the elephant was in Honolulu. Speaking of your friend Christine, yes, um, which we give her shout outs all the time, and her dad because he's awesome. <laughs> great. So at the end of this episode, we're mm-hmm. gonna give our patron, our patron, our patrons a shout out. So if you are a patron, stick around to the end because you're gonna get a shout out. If you're not a patron yet and you want to become one, you'll get one in a later episode once we see you pop up. Pretty it's very cool. exciting. It is so exciting. I downloaded the app. So that now I get notifications. You I'm just like, oh now did God. that? Yeah. I. What kind of a millennial are you? Thank you. See? <laughs> Not a millennial. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with being a millennial. You know? She is a millennial. Totally fine. My brother is a millennial. And you are. I have good friends who are millennials. Yes. 
I, of course, am not a millennial. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't hold it against them. They're good people. I still love you. Oh, Jen, we do have a little bit of news. We're going to be doing something special at the end of this episode. Uh, We're going to be announcing some winners. Right. Our winners from our March-April giveaway and contest. Do you guys remember that? It was huge, you guys. I don't know how anybody would Millions of entries. Millions. Upon millions. Yes. So we had, you know, it's this kind of lottery where Mm -hmm. we had some winners. We threw their names in and we'll announce those winners at the end. Yeah. And what their wonderful prizes will be. But we also have a quick correction, which we mentioned on the Instagram. Yes. About the quokkas. Yes. And I blame you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there have been some differing reports, right? We, We did get some feedback from some Australian listeners. Yes, we did. One told us it's quokka, like if you're going to say guacamole. Yes. Or waka, waka, waka. She... She didn't say that. But she didn't say that. I'm no. just, yeah. We just, Megan just Thinking threw that words. in there. Um, but with a Q. So quokka. Quokka. Yeah. So we said quokka. Then we did also have a comment from someone who is in Perth mm-hmm. and uh, gave us a couple good tidbits of information. One that they do kind of say it quokka. Mm-hmm. Like maybe not as hard. Oh, as what we were, we're like quokka. <laughs> we're like American style. Yeah. No, I'll get you some quokas. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, they also let us know that uh, local people call Rottenest Island Rotto. Yeah, which is cool. That's pretty cool. But it has some kind of dark history. One of our listeners uh, wrote about that, and we looked it up, and yeah, it looks like mm-hmm. um, it was used as a prison camp. Right, like an internment camp mm-hmm. kind For of. the indigenous Aboriginal people, and that's just in late 1800s, early 1900s. Right. You know, history just sucks a lot of times. Yeah. We do apologize for mispronouncing the quokka, but you know, if we said it to the actual animal itself... Yeah. A quokka would just be okay with it and just be cute and just be like, whatever. I hope you guys got to see some of those amazingly funny quokka memes and pictures. I laughed for a long time. We should have made a post so they just live on in in, In infamy. In infamy. (laughs) They live on forever. Perpetuation. Yes. They perpetuate. All right. I have some amazing science news, Megan. If you're you're all done with that, I'm going to jump into some pretty cool stuff here so everybody... Hold on for some exciting, I'm scrolling, I'm getting to it. (laughs) I'm just going to talk a little bit about bats. You don't know this, but that totally kind of goes along a little bit with our story today. Are you serious? Yes. I love that. Our brains. (laughs) Our brains know. I I, Honestly, I don't know her story at all. So yeah, because of all the coronavirus pandemic, you know, everybody blames the bats. We're talking shit about bats. I know. And bats are just freaking cool and there's a lot of neat stuff about them Mm -hmm. so i feel like we need to just you know give the bats a little love right now a little love and respect i i think somewhere in may i'll have to go look at the calendar yeah there's some sort of bat appreciation coming up so i probably should have saved that this for then but you know it's fine a few interesting facts about bats and this is all coming from the eco health alliance they are the only flying mammals so some people may not know that. I mean, I I'm don't trying know. to think of another flying mammal. And, They're the uh, only ones. So they account for one in five of all mammals living on the planet. There's about 1300 bat species worldwide. That's a lot of bats. One in five, like one of every five mammals is a bat. Yes. That's freaking crazy. It's crazy, right? Because That's there's crazy. 1300 
bat species worldwide, but they're threatened by loss of their habitat because of hunting and are most of them are considered endangered or threatened. Although they're the only mammal that can fly. Yeah. They're freaking good at it, just so you know. The Mexican free-tailed bat can it can fly up to 99 miles per hour. Shut the front door. How insane is that? That's like Fast and Furious right there. Yeah, it is. And they can also fly as high as 10,000 feet. That's like a... Wait, what? As, as they compared it to a bald eagle. Yeah, it's crazy. They're amazing. They're very adaptable. And they can live in like, they live on like every continent. So they're in Africa, Asia, Australia, Europe, and the Americas. They can also be found as far north as the Arctic and as far south as Argentina and the southern tip of South Africa. Very adaptable, but there's all different kinds of bats, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that's pretty cool is that they're separated into two categories. So there's mega bats and micro bats. So the biggest ones that we know, yes, that we're quite familiar with, are the mega bats are the flying foxes, yes, or fruit bats. We call them fruit bats, but flying foxes in Australia. I've seen them mm -hmm. in Australia. They're huge, like bigger than bigger ours than the here. ones. Oh here. my god, oh, wow. they're huge. So they can have a wingspan of up to six feet. Shut up. Yeah, that's huge. And then the smallest micro bats, which is the kitties hognose bat, are about the size of your thumbnail and weigh less than a penny. How cute is that? Itty bitty. Like, look at your thumbnail right now. That's so tiny. It's so tiny. Like, you would think it was just like a little insect and like but swatted it's a, away. But it's a bat. <laughs> it's a mammal. It's a bat. Oh my God. I know. Cute. So they say that bats also um, built the rainforest. And we kind of know they're seed dispersers, right. right? Yes. They go from tree to tree. They eat all this fruit and then they just poop it out. And they can fly um, as far as 250 miles in a night. So they spread the fruit seeds like across big areas and, you know, ensuring the survival of these plants in the forest. That's very cool. It's very cool. And so that's one issue we have on Guam is because of the snakes mm -hmm. and the loss of fruit bats or the and the birds and everything. Yeah. All the seed dispersers are gone. So the forests have really suffered. Taking a hit. Big time. Um, they also control insects. Mm -hmm. The insect eating bats, insectivores, they eat a bunch of insects. So you want to keep those around. One bat can eat up to 1,200 mosquitoes in a single hour. So think about that with malaria, dengue, and all those illnesses that people suffer from. Because what? Mosquitoes are like the worst, right? They, well, weren't they number two? They Was were number one. One. They were number Humans one. Humans were, were number, number two. <laughs> we were number two. Yeah, they, you, mosquitoes claim roughly 750,000 human lives a year. How many mosquitoes is, do they eat an hour again? They said roughly 1,200. Thank you, bats. But yeah. Like, oh. What if they weren't eating all those mosquitoes? Right. Yeah. Think about that. It makes me think of those like infomercials they have of people, you know, collecting, like they put out like a pheromone trap for mosquitoes mm -hmm. and it's just like full of buzzing mosquitoes. It's so gross. So gross. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of Lilo and Stitch when he's like, goes to save the mosquitoes oh, and then yeah. they all like attack him. <laughs> I love that movie. That's great. I hope I'm not stealing any of your thunder if you were going to talk about bats. No, I wasn't. Okay. I wasn't going to talk about bats, but they're in the story. That's perfect. They have a kind of interesting part in the story. Remember back to our Peace Corps episodes, we mm -hmm. had some we had some stories by um, one of our favorite Peace Corps, return Peace Corps volunteers, Tom Juring, and yes. he talked about vampire bats. Yeah. So they're actually, of all those 1,300 plus different species of bats, there's only three that are actually vampiric. Oh. Cool word, huh? Vampiric. <laughs> this, so this is where we get into bats spreading disease. Bats are highly immune to many diseases. They can be carriers, but they don't actually get sick from it. Right. 
the bats are they're not affected by diseases like lethal diseases like ebola and sars and there's another one called nipa i don't i haven't heard of it before this n-i-p-a-h they like they said they carry it around and then it's usually it's a human's fault because they go and eat the bat they eat the bats or they handle them for some reason so that's why they get a bad rap the sars outbreak in china was due to humans touching dead bats Ooh. that were sold in this sounds gross like market. wet markets what's a wet market i don't know but it sounds gross is it like a fish market <laughs> you gotta walk know. around you gotta walk around in boots i don't know and then the nipa outbreak in humans happened after pig farmers were feeding mangoes to the pigs which had been partially eaten by bats who were oh, carrying that yeah so yeah they carry this around but you know what just leave them alone how about that let them just live their lives. Just let them live their lives. I would be, you know, just think about it. If you were going around being like, I carry Ebola virus around with me, people mm-hmm. would stay the F away, right? Yeah. <laughs> As an introvert, I kind of like it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So anyway, a little info about bats. And I'm glad that it's going to lead a little bit into your story. They show up. Okay. Well, they make an appearance. That's good. Do chickens show up? Uh, no. Well, there you go. I'm going to do a bat post and see how many likes it gets. It won't be like the chickens, I guarantee. All right, Jen, are you ready to get into this story? I'm so ready. Are you ready? So today, Jen, I'm going to be talking about the Sahara Desert. A Sahara. A Sahara. So I got this information from a bunch of different places, um, but the information I got about the Sahara Desert, I got from Britannica online, which I kind of like had a little moment of happiness. That you didn't have to look it up inside a giant book. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That I didn't have to call up my aunt who maybe had the whole (laughs) set and be like, hey, can I come over and borrow your S book? Because I got to learn about the Sahara. The kids now don't know how easy they have it. They have no idea. All right. Yeah. So Britannica is the first place that I got this information. And then, of course, there's a bunch of Wikipedia stuff. Marathondesable.com. Ooh. One step forward. One step, the the number four, the letter four, the number four word.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the BBC. And then um, I just kind of going to throw this in there that the Instagram of the person we're going to be talking about today. Are we following them? We are. I followed them. Good times. That's exciting. Oh, and the show Losers on Netflix. Oh, okay. did you ever watch that? No. It's a documentary series of episodes of Losers, and it's great. Okay. Everyone should go watch it, That's but a- not right now. Like Losers of game. Like Losers of what? All sorts of things. Okay, I kind of like that. Yeah. yeah everybody yeah. hates to lose, but it's mm-hmm. actually it's okay. It, there's a lot of learning. It makes you a better person. Exactly. So the Sahara Desert. The name Sahara is from the Arabic Sahara. I probably f that up really hard. I say it Sahara. Is that okay oh. or is that wrong? I don't know. I just always have said Sahara. I don't know, listeners. Do you say Sahara or Sahara? The Sahara Desert. <laughs> Whatever. You're from Georgia. Well, but yeah, but I'm not really from Georgia. You know what I mean? Whatever. I'm from Georgia, but my family's not from Georgia. I so. grew up in Oklahoma, and I'm pretty sure everybody from there says Sahara. Yeah. Sahara Desert. I'm sure I probably, well, also, you know this about my family. Like, my mom calls, uh, like, a bookshelf an etage. So right. I, and vase. Right. She says vase. And my mom says Warsh. Warsh. <laughs> so yeah. that's the difference. There we go. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, the, the Arabic is S-A-H-R-A has like a long A at the end. And it means desert. 
Oh, okay. So there you go. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. Yep. It is the largest desert in the world. It is located in northern Africa. It's approximately 3,000 miles or 4,800 kilometers from east to west and between anywhere between 800 and 1,200 miles from north to south. And the total area is 3.32 million square miles or 8.6 million square kilometers. Wow. So big, 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 big freaking desert. Desert. Yeah, we know that. So, Megan, we just talked about deserts in our last episode. So this is kind of like, this could be a series. Yeah, so this is almost like, we're kind of having like a desert theme. We did some colder themes, I feel like, in the beginning of our... Some Arctic. Yeah, and now Mm -hmm. we're... And I was originally going to do a Lost at Sea survival, Mm -hmm. but then I remembered this one. And And you haven't haven't finished the book yet. And I haven't, I gotta finish the book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the actual area of the Sahara Desert varies because the, it expands and contracts over time, if that makes sense. Okay. So like it winds breeds. move things, yeah. the sand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It kind of like... There's no clear cut lines right. to where it begins and ends. It's not like, all right, here, demarcated, done. Yes. Got it. Although I did read some article and pff, I'm so sorry, I didn't pull it up. This was kind of what I was just reading about the Sahara. It was like... There's a group talking about trying to put like a line of vegetation on one of the borders of the Sahara to present desertification of those areas because it's expanding. I can't remember if it's in the north or the south, Hmm. but there's like a a conservancy group, I think, is trying to um, stop it from encroaching on, you know, like agricultural lands or. Right, right, right. Part of me is like, just let it do its thing. Yeah, it's a desert. It's a desert. It's a natural part of the world. Anyway, the Sahara is bordered in the west by the Atlantic Ocean, in the north by the Atlas Mountains and Mediterranean Sea, and in the east by the Red Sea, and the south by the Sahel. The principal topographical features include, there are some, I mean, it's like variations on a theme here, shallow seasonally inundated basins that are called chots or deas, large oasis depressions where there's like water and some vegetation and people kind of congregate there. A mirage? A mirage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Extensive gravel-covered plains, rock-strewn plateaus, abrupt mountains, sand sheets, dunes, and sand seas. Sand seas? Yeah, sand seas. Oh, I don't like the it's sound of that. It's just a lot of sand. desolate rocky yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm sure it's beautiful we talked about this in the last episode but frightening i was saying i'm not a big fan of the desert although i see that it's beautiful and that there's people that really love it Mm -hmm. it's just it's not my thing so the sand sheets and dunes cover approximately 25 percent of the sahara surface i didn't know this but there are like different kinds of dunes oh my god there's so many different kinds of dunes jen yeah there's uh, i and honestly i didn't spend too much time learning about all the different kinds of dunes because we only really talk about small dunes Uh in the story. But it's like parabolic blowout dunes, crescent-shaped bark chens, crescent-shaped bark chens, and transverse dunes, longitudinal sheafs, massive complex forms associated with sand seas, and pyramidal dunes uh, that can reach heights of nearly 500 feet. There are some scientists out there that are like, you don't know how many kinds of dunes there are. There's like so many. There are so many and they are very distinct. I'm all like, I just know that you can't drive on them in Florida. It kind of makes me think of Napoleon Dynamite when his grandma like was going on the sand dunes and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like broke her arm or something. Oh, God. And so he had to eat quesadillas. 
That's so good. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. <laughs> if you can imagine, Jen, as much as we know about soil, uh, this soil is like pretty shitty. There's not a lot of organic matter. Mm-hmm. There's only few strata in the soil. So you know, like when soil is like building on itself, there's usually like a lot of different layers of soil. If it if it's like healthier, it'll have like a big organic layer and all this stuff. The soil in the Sahara is like just a couple strata. Right. I took soil science in college. Oh, there we go. It was... I don't remember <laughs> much. That professor was awesome. He was really good, but I was just so not interested. My husband's really into that stuff. Yeah, that's true. Soil and plants and things. So there are some nitrogen nitrogen fixing bacteria present in some areas. And we do know from ecology, maybe some of you don't know, that nitrogen fixing is really important to help plants grow. Mm-hmm. I do remember that. Some people say that the Sahara is approximately two to three million years old. And some other people say that actually it's 7 million years old because of a dune that they found in Chad in 2006. So there's a little bit of debate on how old the Sahara actually is. That's a lot of millions of years. It's a lot be, of millions. It's fucking old as that's shit. That's a big discretion right there. <laughs> right. It turns out that actually humans have contributed to the stability of the desert because uh, the activities that humans have done increase the surface reflectivity. Because we build so much stuff that causes reflection. So the reflectivity increases the amount of evapotranspiration. Evapotranspiration is just like when water leaves an area, evaporates out of like plants and shit. This is a lot of science happening right now, Megan. I'm so sorry. I'm really amazed. Don't cut it. It's good. I think it's fine. We're all learning here. We're learning Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Let's hold hands and learn about science (laughs) together. The Sahara has two climactic, climactic, (laughs) sexy, Uh, has two climate regions. Let's just go with that. Um, A dry subtropical climate in the north and a dry tropical climate in the south. I know you're like, wow, what's the difference? Because it's all dry. (laughs) Not a lot. Yeah, Yeah, there's not a lot. It's there's not a lot of rain. No, it's hot as fuck in the summer. Yeah. Like 122 degrees Fahrenheit. In the winter, though, so I think the northern area has like an actual winter uh, and it gets very cold. Um, It ranges from 31 degrees. That's like 17 degrees Celsius, so 31 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter to 122 Fahrenheit or 50 Celsius. I mean, 30 is. That's kind of cold. Dude, I couldn't handle it. No, that's cold. That's cold. Yeah, I didn't realize it got that cold, but only in certain areas, right? Yeah, the the northern dry tropical, I'm sorry, subtropical climate. Okay. So cold to cool winters and hot summers, um, they do have more rain. Oh, okay. But still, not a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's still a desert. Let's talk about vegetation in the Sahara. Saharan vegetation... Uh, it's, there isn't a lot of it, obviously. Yeah. There's a uh, scattered concentrations of grasses, shrubs, and trees in the highlands. There are obviously some like vegetated areas in the oasis because there's more water. Yeah. And things grow around land. it. Yeah. yeah. Land in the Sahara is like the soil is, um, more saline. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more salt right? Because it's super dry. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the plants are salt tolerant. Oh, interesting. Or heat heat and salt tolerant. There are some prominent woody plants in the highlands. And those are things like olive, cypress, and mastic trees. (laughs) I don't even know what mastic trees are. Did I look it up? Of course not. 
Apologies. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> so, I can look it up, Megan. Oh, thank you. Mastic. Also, some additional woody plants, trees, if you will. Acacia, which we are aware of here in Guam because the U.S. Forest Service thought it was a really great nitrogen-fixing plant. But there's lots of different kinds of acacia. Yeah. Uh, there are some palms, dome palm, date palm, thyme, and oleander are also some other woody plants. I looked up the mastic tree. Thank you for doing my research, Jen. I mean, there's really not much to say. It's just, it's a, just tree. a tree. Yeah. There we go. Does it? But it says that it's usually found on some Greek island. Oh. They're pretty. Do they look like olive trees? Yeah. Similar? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cute trees. Here's where I put the information about folks wanting to plant a wall of trees along the edge. That's in the south. They're wanting to do that in the south. Like what kind of trees? It doesn't say. It just says a wall of trees. Weird. A great green wall. Oh, like <laughs> like a border wall? <laughs> like a border wall. <laughs> 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 So let's talk about fauna. There are cobras and pygmy crocodiles. I know that you're really into crocodiles, Jen. So yeah, I want I love you to them. know that you definitely so good. should go to the Sahara to check Great. those out. They're, they're just everywhere. Well, no, they're just, they only exist in remote drainage basins. Yeah, just stay away from those. Yeah. And so, what else? Cobras. Uh, cobras. Just cobras. Yeah, yeah. The North African elephant became extinct during the Roman period. Uh, so they used to be there. Oh, I know. Too bad. Very sad. Um, so if you remember from our elephant episode, there are only elephants in the south okay. of Africa. Mm-hmm. So there are some issues with animals in the Sahara. Most notably, loss of wildlife is related to uh, habitat destruction and the use of advanced firearms in the area. What they're talking about is military bombing. All right. So there were the lion ostrich and some other species were around the northern margins in 1830. Then the very last addicts. So if you're not sure what an addix is, it's an ungulate. It's like it's like an antelope, but the kind of antelope that has like the giant horns that kind of go up and curve a little bit in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were, it says the last one was killed in the early 1920s. Aw. Yeah, very sad. Way to go, people. A lot of antelope have been killed in that area as well. Yeah. Well, people got to eat. So there are some mammals. (laughs) (laughs) My God. (laughs) There are some mammal species in the Sahara. There's the gerbil, the gerboa. The the gerbil? The gerbil. Are you serious? I swear to God. Like, is that where they come from? I don't even know. Where are gerbils native to? But I mean, it's the desert, so you it, they got to be small. Everything's got to be small. Cape hare and the desert hedgehog. There are Barbary sh- sheep and shimitar horned oryxes. That's hard to say. There are gazelles, dama deer, and Nubian wild asses. The Anubis baboon, spotted hyena, common jackal, and sand fox. Wait, wait, wait. Can I interrupt you real quick? Sure. Gerbils naturally found in the sandy plains of the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, originally known as desert rats. There and they're go. commercially brought to North America <laughs> to breed as pets. Oh, God. Yeah. That's insane. That's, I mean, I think people like from. you just go to the pet store and there's freaking gerbils and hamsters. They're from the desert. They're from the Sahara Desert. That's insane. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, my God. I have an aunt who's like really into she had these guinea pigs that she had for like years and years and years. Well, now I need to go. I need to know where everything comes from. The hamsters were first discovered in in Syria, but they also lived in Greece, Romania, Belgium, and northern China. They like warm, dry areas hmm. like sand dunes and edges of deserts. Holy crap. So I feel like that is the one thing I love about this podcast is we keep <laughs> learning, disco- things. learning things like like that Hello Kitty is not a cat. 
that was the first mind-blowing moment. Right. And now I know that gerbils and hamsters come from the, the desert in Africa. You know, but Jen, I have to look up this... guinea pigs now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, can you please look up guinea pigs? I'm interested. <laughs> so they are from South America. That oh. makes a little more sense. I feel like... So they're highly adaptable, obviously. Oh, yeah. That makes me think of... Uh, yeah, they like a goody and No, I remember like seeing that. something about... Um, I think they eat their like... Yeah. Some people, a lot of people eat oh, them. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. They I think eat, I knew this. Those actually. like big, like they're, mm-hmm. they're those, yeah, mammals of South America. Yeah. And I, I think eat. I knew mm-hmm. that and I was like, oh, interesting. Random. I'm not a big fan of pocket pets, like gerbils, hamsters. Yeah. I mean, they're cute and all that. I just don't. Mm-hmm. Some other animals <laughs> that are in in uh, the Sahara, the Libyan striped weasel and slender mongoose. If you were to include the birds living in the Sahara. Wait, is that like and the mongoose and the cobra? Like Ricky Tiki Tavi? Yes. Like, why didn't you let me get it out of my mouth? Ricky Tiki Tavi. There. I feel better now. Did you ever hear that book that's like Ricky Tiki Tembo, No Say Rembo, Cherry Cherry Bip Cherry Pembo? No, I don't know what you're saying right now. Okay. It's a story about this kid who has a brother who falls in a well and his brother's name is so long, it takes him forever to get him out of the well. Oh. Because he's got to tell everybody about it, but it's like, the I don't remember what the moral of the story is. Maybe it's like, just name your kids a short name. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> No, so, but yeah. I love the Ricky Tiki Tavi story. So now we know that they live together in the desert. And, yeah. And then they mm-hmm. took them to Hawaii. Yay! And they took them to Hawaii. <laughs> oh, God. Good job. So if you were to include all of the birds living in the Sahara and migratory birds. Okay. Uh, there are over 300 different species of birds. Oh, wow. That's a Sahara. lot more than I would have expected. Right? I'm just thinking like crows. Well, migratory crows. though. Flying along, eating at people's dead bodies. Vultures. Do they have vultures? I mean, crows are in there, but yeah, I I, I would assume. You didn't look it up? We don't have a list of birds? No, I did not. I was like 300. I was like, never mind. (laughs) There's a lot of fucking birds. And now we're going to go through the list of 300 (laughs) bird species. All right, you guys. And you Number just go through one. All of the different kinds of finches. Just, just like it's like it's like ornithology hell all over again, where there were like thirty different finches that were all small and brown laid right. out, and I had to say the scientific name of each one, and I was like, I just can't. I'm sorry. You're just like crying. <laughs> I just can't. I'm not gonna read out the birds. All right. Um, there are uh, the coastal zones and interior waterways of the Sahara do attract many species of water and shorebirds, Jen. So there you go. That's about as as uh, listy as I'm going to get. Okay. I'm disappointed, I have to say. I feel like our <laughs> listeners, you know, are also disappointed. Just all the scientific names. Yes. Look, I'll do a recording <laughs> of me just listing them after this. Be so- oh, Patreon bonus, everyone. <laughs> just... Wow. You get what you pay for, right? Is it? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. There are ostriches, uh, various raptors. So these are some other birds. Okay, Jen. yeah. Um, secretary birds, guinea fowl, and Nubian. And originally I read this bastards, but it's bustards. Uh, yeah, it's bustards. Yeah. I'm no, glad. I was, don't I was don't like, say bastards. Not, I'm like trying That's to That's just look. rude, Megan. It's super rude. Um, there are desert eagle owls and barn owls. I love owls. Mm-hmm. I could just look at owls all day. They're kind of fun. Every time there's an owl that I scroll past on Instagram, I just, I always like it and we, I want to share it. We only follow owl pages. That's it. <laughs> that's all we follow. And chickens. Owls and chickens. Oh my God. Done. 
It's like I said I wasn't going to list any birds, but I'm totally listing birds here. Sandlarks and Pale Crag <laughs> yes, Martins. It's true. I totally called it. <laughs> Everybody, wait. Just, just, <laughs> you know. And then the last two I'm going to mention are the brown-necked and fan-tailed ravens. Okay. So, I mean, some people say crows, but ravens. Well, there's crows and ravens. Yeah, they're different. They're different. Okay, everybody, wake up. Yes. And then this one time, there was a raven, <laughs> but they said it was a crow, but it was a raven. <laughs> <laughs> if you know anything about herps, you will know that the frogs, toads, and crocodiles live in lakes and pools because they need the water because they're, well, crocodiles. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Frogs and toads, at least. Yeah. They're amphibians. They're amphibians and they need water for the first part of their life anyway. Yeah. Um, lizards, chameleons, skinks, and cobras are found among the rocks and dunes uh, in the sandy areas. So don't be picking up any rocks in the Sahara. What did you say? Lizards, skinks. chameleons, skinks, and cobras. Cobras. Oh, okay. What about um, um, scorpions? Oh, yeah. I didn't. Uh, you know what? The only invertebrate that is mentioned is here in the Britannica is uh, snails. Oh. Which of all the things to live I in the desert. I would not think a snail. You would, would be like, okay, it's saline. It's hot. Yeah. It's dry. What kind of snail is that? Hardcore. Death wish yeah. snail. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they're scorpions. Yeah, I'm Britannica sure. Missed oh, it. yeah, I'm sure they just missed it. Absolutely. The lakes and pools of the Sahara also have algae and brine shrimp. And other small crustaceans. Cute. Fun. Mm. And then, of course, here we are to the snails. Uh, it just says, the various snails that inhabit the desert are an important source of food for birds and animals. <laughs> <laughs> they're just crispy. They're they just, just like fried. They're just, yeah, they're yeah. already like warmed up escargot. So the way that they survive uh, is that they're dormant. They can be dormant for many, many, many years. Oh. And then when there's rainfall, they're revived. I don't know if you've ever heard of the lungfish before. No. I remember learning about the lungfish in high school. And it's this fish that like lives in areas that are not always inundated with water. So like wetland areas Mm -hmm. that can be dry. They dig a hole down into the ground. Actually, I think they might be in the desert. Anyway, they dig a hole down into the ground when it's uh, starting to get too dry and they just incubate for long periods of time. And then when the rains come back and inundate the area... They are revived again. They're like I just looked it up because that's what I do when you tell stories. Yeah. I just you're go- like I Google all the. Are things. you lying to me? I'm like she doesn't know. I better look this up. They're freshwater ripidiest, and how the hell do you say that? Uh, well, they're in riparian zones. Ripidiestian. Like yeah, I got that wetlands. part anyway. Yeah. But they're they're cute, including the ability to breathe air. Did yeah. you say that all that stuff? I didn't say the ability. to I breathe think that's air. why they're called lungfish. Lungfish. Mm-hmm. Anyway, interesting. Does it have a thing of them digging into the ground? When it's dry season, the lungfish burrow themselves deep into the mud, digging a path by taking mud into its mouth and forcing it out its butt butts. <laughs> It's gills. And then once it reaches a comfortable depth, it'll stop digging to secrete a mucus mm-hmm. out of its skin that hardens to form a protective cocoon around it. And only the mouth is left exposed for breathing. And it stays in this like hibernation until there's the water, water comes back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weird. See, I wasn't lying. <laughs> they can stay underground in dried mud for as long as four years. Yeah. How the hell? That is insane. And those snails... And Sahara also have the ability to just chill in dormancy for years. Wow. Until rain shows up. 
And then they, it, it's like, uh, can you imagine it? Though, you're like this desert snail. You're like, I'm just going to sleep for a while. It's like two years later, it rains. You like come popping up, right? And I immediately, feel like you would be that snail. You're, you're like, immediately <laughs> eaten by a bird. <laughs> like a, ra- a raven is just like, boom. Damn it. I didn't mention this when I was talking about bats, but a lot of them travel south in the winter, but some actually hibernate. They can survive encased in ice during their hibernation. Oh, weird. Yeah. So they call them batsicles. Mm, that's funny. I wish I would have remembered to say that earlier, but I said it now. So Well, it's great. It fits in. Thank you. There are people who live in the Sahara, Jen. Uh, Not I. Right. It's uh, so the Sahara Desert is about as large as the United States, but there are only 2.5 million inhabitants. That's less than one person per square mile. Sounds good. Yeah, perfect. So wherever there is some some vegetation, there are grazing animals. So like I mentioned, the sheep and some people have cattle. So there's this whole thing about the history of the the people in the Sahara. Mm-hmm. But basically, there's like nomadic people. And there are people who still taking care of livestock in pastures. Um, and there are some people who have have like settlements, but mostly there are uh, a lot of nomadic people. Are they nomadic because they're herding animals across? Correct. Okay. Most of the people who are located in one area and aren't really nomadic, um, they live in the oases. Oases. Oases versus? An oasis. An oasis. (laughs) Multiple oasises. Yeah. There are some folks who also do farming of like the date palm, palm, pomegranates and other fruit trees. Um, Also, millet, barley and wheat are some additional crops that people will grow. Mm -hmm. That's basically the end. We're just going to end the Britannica article there. Oh, there's so much information. you ever wanted to know about the Sahara Desert, there you have it. Plus more. We'll be listing out all the taxonomic names (laughs) of the flora and fauna. Every single bird. Be sure and tune in for that. It's going to be great. So let's talk about this kind of kick-ass marathon. Oh, my God. We're to the story. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a marathon. Just so you know. I feel like I just finished a marathon already. <laughs> just so you know. That, Britan- that Britannica I, article. I totally, <laughs> I totally know that, that like most of that's going to get cut. So it's going to be like quick. Just so you know, this is why we don't YouTube. <laughs> we would be the worst YouTubers. You would... Turn it off after like five seconds. Jesus. Anyway. I'm turning my brain off already. There is a six-day, 251-kilometer or 156-mile-long ultra marathon. 156 miles. I've heard of these. Yeah. And it is considered the toughest foot race on Earth. Yes. So it's a foot race. I, And it is called the Marathon des Sables, which is French for Marathon of the Sands. Okay. And it is also known as the Sahara Marathon. I think I've read articles or seen something. I know this oh, might be kind of funny to you, but back pre-Peace Corps. When you were running? I lot? used to do a lot of running. I used to actually buy the Runner's Magazine. Like Runner's World? Yeah. Like those kind of mag. I don't even yeah. I love it. And I would read them like completely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I read about this. So this a multi-day race is held every year in southern Morocco. The first one started in 1986. It was created by a French concert promoter, Patrick Bauer, who in 1984, he actually went across the Sahara Desert on foot by himself 
What? He covered 350 kilometers or 214 miles in 12 days, and he never encountered an oasis or a desert community as he was walking, running this. Wait, how long did it take him? 12 days, 214 how miles. How did he go by himself? Like, how did he take all the water and stuff he needed? Good question. I mean, I could see, oh, That's a story for days? another time. Holy 12 days. shit. Yeah. That's crazy. And I, I, I'm, I mean, I don't know what his motivation was. Maybe it was to like find himself or maybe it was to die. I don't know. But he made it. That may be another story. And then he, two years later, was like, I mean, that inspired him to come up with this foot race across mm-hmm. the Sahara. But it's not 12 days, the foot race. It's it's a six day. But it's marathon. not as many miles as he covered. Not as many miles. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But still, I can't wrap my head around that. Right. So the first marathon de sable was mm-hmm. in 1986 and there were 23 runners and the first two winners are bernard gaudin and christiane plumier they both uh, sound french yeah i was gonna say is this <laughs> was this mostly french folks both it of was, france yeah <laughs> um and they were the winning men and women Man and woman. By 2009, there were over a thousand runners participating. That's around the time that they created this uh, organization that develops projects to assist children in disadvantaged populations in the domains of health, education, and sustainable development in Morocco. And it is called the Solidarity. It's I'm not good at the French, but basically, it's like Solidarity Marathon de Sable. But I I like it. So it started out as just this guy's idea, but then they turned it into something charitable and Mm -hmm. gave you know, to inspire more people to join. Cool. Nice. So let's talk about an Italian guy, which I'm super interested in this. Jen knows because I, through Ancestry.com, discovered that I am a 55% Italian. You are. Yeah. That is such a cool story. I love it. She never knew. I never knew. And now, now I know. And it makes so much sense. (laughs) (laughs) So this Italian man, his name is Mauro Prosperi. Mauro Prosperi. See, she can do it. (laughs) Um, He was born July 13th, 1955. He's a cancer, like myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1974, he began to work or he worked as a national police. He worked in crowd control. So I don't really know what that means exactly, but he was a cop. Okay, so he's like super into pentathlon events so that's like horse riding and freaking fencing they do a bunch of shit that's five that's five things yeah um i don't remember what all five of them are but does it still have like the swimming running biking biking like a try fencing and then horse riding i don't know fencing but fencing and horse riding are involved okay um, and he actually went to the Olympics, uh, 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles and won gold. Wow. Uh, with the, yeah, kind of badass. He met his wife, um, Chinza mm-hmm. Pagliara, at a pre-Olympic pentathlon event. And she was working there as an English and Russian language interpreter. I first saw this story when I was watching that Netflix show called Losers. Mm-hmm. It was a 2019 documentary. Um, and I was like, this is freaking insane. Um, I want to know. I'm going to watch it. Yeah, it's great. It's really great. It's kind of funny. Um, wh- when Chinza and Mauro meet, uh, she's like, he was so positive and like upbeat and happy. And I just love that about him. He was mm-hmm. really great. And that really attracted me to him. And we got married within six months. It was like, wow, like whirlwind, whatever. They have three kids. 
And in the Netflix documentary, she's like, you know, but when you have kids, your priorities change. Oh, yeah. But Mauro, like, never changed his priorities. Oops. His passions, he's really passionate about running Mm -hmm. and kind of like adventuring. Mm -hmm. Uh, But running is like his thing and he loves it. And this like pentathlon deal, it was like, it was what he was really into. He's like, what kids? I got to go do all these things. Yeah, I got to go run for 40 miles. You guys just chill out in the house. See you later. Yeah. And she, you know, made the transition to motherhood and was kind of like, no, the priority is family. Yeah. Like not what you want to do. Like, sorry, you can only run 20 miles today. Yeah. Because you need to come home and have dinner with us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So after after he won the gold at the Olympics in 1984 in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. he retired from pentathlons. From penting. From, from penting. Yes. <laughs> he did say that what he liked the most about running extreme marathons, because he started getting into marathoning. Right. After this. Um, and he says, it's the fact that you come into close contact with nature and the races take place. It takes place in beautiful settings such as mountains, deserts, glaciers, as a professional athlete, I hadn't been able to enjoy these surroundings because I was so focused on winning medals. So he kind of goes from like that medal focus to like, let me enjoy it, enjoy it more. Yeah, he goes from competitive athlete to more of a recreational sure athlete, but I guess. still super hardcore because he's running these ultra marathons. Okay, yeah. right. Seriously. Yeah. So he's like still training, but he's just starting to like stop and smell the flowers a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he has this friend, Giovanni. 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 Come on. Um, so, uh, you know, actually, Mauro was born in Rome. So he's from Rome. But Giovanni, I think, and Cinza are from Sicily. Mm-hmm. So they actually, he had moved to Sicily, I think, at some point. Anyway, his friend Giovanni Manzo, uh, they'd known each other for seven years. They're both running enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. He's like, listen, dude, there's this amazing marathon in the desert, but it's super tough. Mauro was like, I love a challenge. So I started training immediately. So his training regimen was like, he runs 40 kilometers, 25 miles a day. Wow. Um, and how, he, does, how do they have time? I guess that's all they do. do you have time. Yeah. That's what they do. You just don't, don't worry about feeding your kids. Your wife's got it. <laughs> oh. oh, Megan. Burn. Ouch. Well, maybe Giovanni doesn't have kids. He didn't, I think, at the yeah. time. Yeah. So he can just do whatever the hell he and, wants. And actually, Giovanni says, because he's interviewed in the Netflix thing, he's like, listen, I told him, like, you got a family, like, you have other priorities. Like, mm-hmm. it's cool if you say no. Yeah. But Mauro was like, was like oh, of course I'm good. Of course, let's go on the boat. <laughs> I got this. We're going to go across to the desert. She can do this because she's Italian. It's fine. It's, I don't know if I'm offensive or not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he's running 40 kilometers or 25 miles a day. And then he's also reducing the amount of water he was drinking so that he could get used to being dehydrated. Because okay. he's going to go on this cross-Sahara run he's gonna get so dehydrated so he's like he's like crazy training and he actually says himself like i was just never home his wife was like number one what the fuck because they had a baby and two little girls oh my god a baby boy baby jen oh my god and two little girls she was like you're insane number one the race is crazy risky Uh, you have to sign a form that says, like, this is where I want my body shipped when I die. Oh. If I die in this race. Like, where do you want your corpse to go? Oh, my God. There's, like, a whole thing. So, like, th- there were all these, all this paperwork you had to fill out and, you know, agreements. And they had three children, like I said, under the age of eight. So she was, like, not happy no. about this. 
And he tried to be like funny about it and was like, don't worry about it. The worst is I'll just get sunburned. And she was like in her brain, like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so how how long did he train for? I think it was like a year. Oh, my God. It was some it was a long period of time that he was training for. Yeah. I could be wrong about that. But so she also says in the documentary, she's like, you know, he never really asked me. It's like he and Giovanni were like, hey, this is super cool. We're going to do this thing. Blah, blah, blah. They talked together about it. Wait, what year were they doing this? 1994. Oh, in 94. In the documentary oh, is in 2019. Yeah, correct. Are they still married? We'll get there. Oh. Oh. <laughs> got us hanging on here. Right? I know. So exciting. He and Giovanni were like, we were going to do this race. And he came home and he was like, all right, I'm going to go do this race. It wasn't like, hey, what do you think about this? I'm going to have to be, you know, training really hard for a year. It's going to take a lot of my time, honey. What do you think? Right. Is it okay? Is this a venture that I should be doing? Right. It it could be dangerous. Yeah. It was just like, all right, I'm going to (laughs) go. The documentary, too, I like how they kind of splice it between like real live interviews. And then instead of doing reenactments, it's like cartoons, kind of these very simple animations. And they draw her face. And it's like pretty true to the photos of the people. Mm -hmm. And the face that she's making at the dinner table when he's like saying, okay, I'm going to go is she's so pissed. Right. And it's great. (laughs) And he's like, her face was really not happy. (laughs) and then they just show like a picture of her face but he did it anyway it's very funny but he did it anyway he was 39 at the time uh they started in foam zugid morocco on april 10th 1994 foam zugid jesus i'm sorry (laughs) f-o-u-m foam come on i mean that's f-o-u-m and then z-g-u-i-d zugid i'm sorry morocco yeah april 10th 1994 is when they started Okay. There were 80 other runners in the whole thing. So remember the very first one they had was like 23. By 2009, they have like 1,000. Okay. Um, there's way more now. Uh, but at the time, there's only 80 people going. The first three days are, I'm not going to say simple, but the first day is like 18 miles. They run on these kind of like salt flats. Mm-hmm. Then the second day, they run 23 miles on rocky surfaces, kind of like up and down. And then the third day, they run another 18 miles over sand dunes. And the way that you run over sand dunes, I didn't know this kind of interesting, is that you everyone kind of lines up in a line, and then you kind of make stairs. So it would suck to be that first person. <laughs> I wonder if but, they do, if they switch it out, like who's first? Yeah, I don't know, maybe, right? Like yeah, you get up yeah. to the top, and you just kind of rest, and you're like, I'm going last now. Yeah, and then you go to the back. Yeah. And the, yeah. So it's about 59 miles that they covered in the first three days. And they wow. have at the end of the day, every day they have a checkpoint, mm-hmm. right? Next morning they get up, do the running. So, so they all run it together. They all kind of run it together. So because some people are more competitive than others, it's like these first three days, mostly they're all together. But by day four, so on day four, they're going to be doing... 53 miles. Oh, my God. On in day one day? Four, in one day. So everyone who's in this race, uh, they have to navigate the desert in self-contained units, if you will. Like, you have to have everything that you need with you at all times. Okay. So he's got a backpack, uh, has a compass, sleeping bag, clothing, portable stove, emergency kit, food, water, all of that stuff is on his back. And then at the race checkpoint stations, I think that's you can fill your water back up like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then every night he had like this little Italian flag 
and he would like put it outside of his little tent and then Aww. all the Italians in the race would come and hang out together. And I was like, that's so cute. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So day three, they're all whatever. They're shooting the shit at night. They get up in the morning. Day four, they start on this 53 mile leg of the marathon. It is the longest leg of the marathon. And as they're going, Giovanni is like, you know, he's like inwardly reflecting like he joined this marathon to look at himself and discover more about him as a person. Mm -hmm. But Mauro joined to I mean, he was an Olympian in his mind. He's like, I want to make top 10. Yeah, he's look, he's competing. He's competing. Yes. And so he kind of runs ahead of Giovanni. He's Mm -hmm. like, okay, your head is in the clouds. Like I'm and and it wasn't even really like you're going to run it with another person. Like everyone kind of runs at their own pace. Mm-hmm. And because this is like a 53 mile stretch, then it starts getting more and more spread out to where like you don't really see other people. You're like mm-hmm. pretty much alone in the desert, relying on your compass. And like there are markers on the trail, mm-hmm. but it's like 1994. Right. It's not like there's like, you know, cell phones or I mean, your GPS unit would be like as big as your backpack. Mauro continues his momentum. He's like full on running, Jen. Not like not like crazy running, but just like jogging, if you will, <laughs> through the desert, jogging. Um, and so that's what I do, Megan. There's this new thing. It's called jogging. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's really great. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a big deal. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, so yeah, he had left Giovanni behind, and he gre- increased his pace to actually. He got up to to fourth place like that's where he's keeping his rank at right so he i can't knows believe he's, he's like carrying all that stuff too and he's 39 he's 39 Jen. yeah but still i mean a lot of athletes i mean they don't realize but they can kind of hit their prime in their 30s yeah and even late 30s early 40s like me <laughs> <laughs> totally hitting the prime all right so the day that day temperatures peaked at 115 degrees fahrenheit that's a very hot dry hot heat and you're just like running mm-hmm. god and they're wearing those like painter's caps do you know what i'm talking about it was like little flaps in the back you oh know what I'm yeah, talking yeah, about. yeah 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 they're like really popular in the 80s and like early yes. 90s what happens is he's running across these small sand dunes because it was so hot that day the surface area above the sand is getting really hot which ends up creating these like swirling winds of sand and eventually turns into a giant sandstorm. Oh, God. Yeah. So he's running essentially alone. And now there's a giant sandstorm. And the sandstorm lasts for eight hours. Wow. All right. So the kind of downside to this is that, like I said, he was running across smaller dunes. And apparently when you're in a sandstorm with smaller dunes, it's kind of worse than larger dunes because they're very easily picked up and moved. Mm -hmm. He considered standing still. But like I said, these small dunes are getting picked up Mm -hmm. in the sandstorm being moved around. So he can't stand still or he's going to be covered in sand. Right. Uh, In an interview that he did with Men's Journal magazine in 1998, he said, when the sandstorm started to blow, I lost sight of everybody else. I kept running, though, because I thought I could see the trail. I was in seventh place and didn't want to lose my standing. It was nearly dark before the winds relented. I started running again, but after a few minutes, it occurred to me that I had lost the trail. So here he says he was in seventh place. Earlier accounts say, like, oh, he was in fourth place. I don't Mm -hmm. know where he was, but he was in the top ten. So because the sand was being blown around so intensely, he actually ended up with uh, nosebleeds and some, like, throat injuries from, like, inhaling. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. 
just the amount of sand. Do they so have crazy. masks? I or imagine you would take some sort of protection with you. Yeah, maybe not at that time. I mean, even he mentions that the flare that they provided to him was like the size of a pen, like a big pen, mm-hmm. and was essentially worthless. Like now in the race, they actually provide these really heavy giant flares mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's safer. Yeah. But at the time in 1994, it was like, no. here's this tiny flare. <laughs> We'll it's like a glow, a glow stick. <laughs> a little glow stick. You just break it up. You're like, eh, over here. <laughs> yeah. They got it from a rave. <laughs> he ended up stopping that evening and he sheltered in some bushes and covered his face with a towel to rest. Mm-hmm. And the next morning he wakes up really early and there's no more wind. So he was like, sweet. All right. And he continued to run for another four hours. So, and he kept looking around because he's like, guaranteed I'm going to run into some people from this race. Yeah, where like, are they? Where are they? He runs up at the top of one of like a larger dune kind of hill area. Mm-hmm. And he can see for really far and mm-hmm. there's no one. And, and, and like, I'm sure he's thinking everybody else had to hunker down. Yeah. And they, he'll catch, you know, they'll yeah. catch up with each other. He'll see them, no big deal. So he kind of starts thinking about it and then he's like, realizes, you know, he's definitely lost the trail. And there are no markers and there are no people. And now he's like, okay, like, okay, this is worst case scenario. I'm lost. He gets an extra water bottle. He pees into it because he's still kind of hydrated, like better hydrated, if you Mm -hmm. will. So he pees into it to save his urine for possibly having to drink it later. He says he thought about this because his grandfather or yeah, his grandfather told him about how that's what they would do in the war. Yeah. So you got to do what you got to do. So this he was like, last story. I mean, he's been, he's been, yeah, exactly. He's been like preparing for this race for mm-hmm. so long. He, you know, I'm sure that emergency preparedness <laughs> is like quickly recalled in mm-hmm. his mind. So. And that's when you were asking me, or you'd mentioned how many times can you drink your own pee before you can't drink your own pee? So I did there, I did read this thing when I was reading about this that, yeah, you can drink your pee, but it's not good for you because there's um, salt in it. So mm-hmm. it's 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 kind of like drinking salt water from the ocean, but you know less salty. Right. So it's going to dehydrate you more. Way more. It's actually urine-y. randomly. I thought this was really weird. It's actually better to drink your own blood. Oh. Yeah. But not pee. Right. <laughs> but then but like, you'll die. Like how does that work? I don't so, want to do either. Right. No. He's like, okay. The race regulation is that I need to stay in place. Mm-hmm. and wait for someone to come rescue me. So he kind of chills out in the spot that he's at until about sunset. And then he sees a helicopter that's like approaching his direction. Mm-hmm. It's a Moroccan police helicopter. And it was, so I guess they had like uh, some all-terrain vehicles that were on the ground that would be driving around looking for people. And then also a helicopter that goes around the area looking for everybody. Right. And so his friend Giovanni actually you know, had made it to that next, after the 53 miles, he made mm-hmm. it to that um, checkpoint and was like, not super worried that Mauro wasn't there. He was kind of like, I think it's okay. Like, I'm sure he's going to show up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until Giovanni finished the race a couple days later oh, that no. he was like, hey, where's my friend? Like, probably he should be here. He was ahead of me. Yeah. Oops. And he wasn't. And actually, it's it's kind of touching. Giovanni says that he didn't even register the like cameras and jubilation that people were 
bestowing upon him for mm-hmm. having completed mm-hmm. the run. He just was crying for the assumed loss of his friend Aww. who wasn't there. Yeah. Right. Back to Morrow. He's standing there. He sees a helicopter coming towards him. He takes out the big pen. He only has one <laughs> flare. flare. He shoots it off and it's like, pew. <laughs> it's <just> like nothing. <laughs> like nothing. Oh my gosh. The helicopter goes away. It doesn't see him. Goes to sleep. The next day, um, he starts walking so he can find shade and water because he knows that under the sun, he's probably going to have heat stroke. And so he needs to find someplace cool and with water. So the issue that he's experiencing now is he has a compass, but there are no landmarks for him to decipher around him. Yeah, it's just sand. It's just sand. So it's like, okay, I have this compass. Right. He's not sure like what direction he's coming from to know where to go to. Where he's going to. Right. And it's not like he sees, you know, Mount whatever in the horizon. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go north towards this mountain. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm going to I'm heading this way. There's no reference point. There's no reference point. Yeah. So he's just he's got this compass and he's like, great. (laughs) Like I could I don't know where I'm going. So he walks for hours, he assumes, and stumbles upon this Muslim marabout shrine. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm saying that right. He sees it. It's like three buildings kind of together. And, you know, I'm sure you see those three buildings and you're like, oh, I'm saved. You know, it's like civilization. But he gets there and all that's there is like a holy man's tomb. So it's like he just walks up in. He says it's like a sarcophagus. Like a giant build. He's like, oh, God. You know, like this is it. It made him feel better to be in the shade and in kind of like a built thing. It was clean inside. Like a structure. A structure. Mm-hmm. So it felt better, like it made him happy, but also it's a little bit ominous. Very ominous. Yeah. yeah. He goes up to the top of one of the buildings and he puts the Italian flag oh, on top it. of it. Like how many flags did he have? I don't know. A I don't lot. know if it was just like one. He had like a whole, just like two backpacks. One of them is like all of his supplies. And the other one is just a backpack of flags. Full of tiny flags to yeah. put everywhere. He actually sheltered in the shrine for a few days. Wow. He's just like chilling out. He ate uh, portions of his food rations that were in his backpack. And he cooked them with his own urine. Like, so he had, he's been still collecting his urine every time he goes to the bathroom collects the urine he either drinks oh, it because he has the little stove and the yeah, pot and yes. he just boils it in he his just, urine yeah and then cooks it so i'm sure it was like flavored <laughs> i don't ever want to do that i know right um he also tried to maintain his hydration he had like wet wipes in his backpack and he would mm-hmm. suck on them oh yeah and i'm like oh god this is 1994 is it those like wet wipes you get at like a barbecue place that smell a little bit lemony like what what kind of wet wipes are we talking about here? Yeah. Or those the wet ones. Remember my my grandparents always had wet ones. Oh, maybe. Yeah. But they're like they chemically know. and weird. Yeah. I would yeah. not want to suck on those. He also licked dew off of the rocks in the morning and then like I said, he was still drinking his urine. Ugh. Which was I mean, had to be getting pretty concentrated by then. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. When he put that flag on the top of the building, on top of the shrine, he actually was like, okay, there's two purposes for this flag. One is like, hopefully someone will see it. Yes. I mean, it's not a huge flag. It's a little flag. Someone might see it and they'll be like, oh, that's random. You know, Mm -hmm. like, let's go check it out. Or when they find his body and he's dead, like his family will be like, oh, this is his flag. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're like, oh, this is an Italian guy. This must be him. So Mm -hmm. anyway, while he was up there on top, he actually saw there was like a colony of bats. Oh, so I here's know. the bats. So fun. 
Yeah. Uh, so he actually grabbed a bunch of them, ripped off their heads with a pocket knife. <laughs> drank their blood. And drank their blood. He like kind of... What kind of bats were they? It doesn't say what kind of bats. And Britannica didn't mention the kind of bats that are found in the Sahara. Britannica. It's like they told us about 300 birds, but like what about the bats? In the Netflix thing, he says that he kind of like mixed up all the innards and sucked them out of the decapitated body. And I'm like, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> like, sounds terrible, but it probably saved him. Oh, yeah. Well, he ate, Jen, he ate the innards of about 20 bats. Okay. It says that there's the desert long-eared bat um, in North Africa and Middle East. Can I just show you a picture? Yeah. Can you imagine ripping oh, off its so head? head? But it is kind of a, it's kind of a creepy it's looking a little creepy guy. Looking <laughs> so yeah, he, he ends up drinking about 20 of these bat shakes. Oh my God. With um, his urine. With his urine. Um, he actually finds some lizards. I would never survive this. Some lizards and some uh, bird eggs and beetles. That are near the shrine, and he also eats those. Some he cooks, and some he just eats raw. This is kind of a sweet little part is that, you know, he felt bad about the bats, Mm -hmm. and he actually buried all of them. He went and dug a little grave for all the bats that he decapitated and drank. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Just poor bats. I would have, I just would have died. I would just die in these situations. I mean, that's why think... we have a podcast called You're Gonna Die Out There because that, that would be me. I would yeah. just feel like I just can't even. So when he was saying, oh, I found these bats, my first thought was like, oh, you catch one and you like cook it. Mm-hmm. You have a stove, like just cook it. Why did he decide? I mean, was he like that hungry? He was just like, shit. And to eat that many of them, just like back to back to back. I mean, why do you eat them raw? Well, like, I wonder if he wrong. was conserving the, the gas. gas or something yeah or he ran out or right. whatever he's there um he's on the fourth day that he's there in this building um he hears he's like outside and he hears a plane Ooh. and he was like oh shit so he writes into the ground help me mm-hmm. like big and then he takes everything that's in his pack, including his pack, his rucksack, that's flammable. And he digs a hole and he puts it all in there and he lights it on fire to oh, make a shoot. smoke signal. Yeah. Because he's like, okay, that's I have this smart. giant thing that says help me, smoke signal. As soon as the smoke starts coming up, a sandstorm hits and blows it all out. No. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. The sandstorm lasts for 12 hours. Ugh. But at least he has that place to stay in. Because, no, right? He did not want to be in a sandstorm. So this is the only time where he's like, okay. I'm fucked. I'm fucked. Yeah. Like, I'm dying. I burned all of this shit. My mm-hmm. sleeping bag. All these. I used it in this pile. I, they were right there. Yeah. Obviously, this is the end. So he writes a farewell message on the wall in, like, some charcoal that he found. Oh. He is basically like... I don't want to suffer, you know, like starving to death is suffering. I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to end my own life. So he says, you know, in the message, he's like, I'm sorry to my family. You know, this is I I should have been a better father, like all this stuff. Oh, man. And he takes out his pocket knife and he slits his wrists. (gasps) Yeah. And he lays down 
and he goes to sleep. That's really sad. It's super sad. He actually recounts his motivations for this moment in his life. Mm -hmm. And in an interview in 2014, he says, I was very depressed. I was convinced I was going to die. Oh, so he survives, everyone. (laughs) This is a survival story. Okay. Yeah. Fun. I mean, you cut your wrists. I know. That's pretty... That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he says, I was convinced I was going to die and that it was going to be a long, agonizing death, so I wanted to accelerate it. I thought if I died out in the desert, no one would find me and my wife wouldn't get the police pension. In Italy, if someone goes missing, you have to wait 10 years before they can be declared dead. At least if I died in this Muslim shrine, they would find my body and my wife would have an income. Aww. So he wanted to stay in the shrine so he would be found. Oh my god. Essentially, because he knows someone will come across him. The next morning, to his surprise, he opens his eyes <laughs> and he's still alive. And he's like, stupid pocket knife. <laughs> like, what the crap? So there's a couple of reasons why he's still alive. One is that he probably didn't cut deep enough. Mm-hmm. But the other is that he's so dehydrated and it's so dry yeah. that his blood clotted before it could just oh bleed out. That motivated him. And just to bring up Castaway one more time. I was going to say, that's a sign. It's like Tom Hanks and Castaway yep. tried to commit suicide. It didn't work. And that motivated him to leave the island. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very similar situation, but in real life, uh, motivated him to get up and leave the shrine and go find help. Wow. Okay. So he was like, all right, I can't lay here forever. Yeah. Now I'm like determined. I I didn't die mm-hmm. after I tried to. Mm-hmm. This is what's happening. I'm going to go. So he, he gets his confidence and determination up and he walks for days. I'm, I forget how many apologies. And he only traveled when it was cool, like cooler in the day. So mornings and evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tried to shield himself Uh, by using shade that's from like cliffs or caves while he was walking. So he really tried to like conserve all his conserve as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like he's moving, probably moving really slowly. So he did see some mountains in the distance and he continued moving towards the directions of the mountains. And he continued and he also was every time he found a plant, he would just squeeze any liquid that would come out of the plant uh, and consume it. And I'm like, thank God you didn't like some kind of crazy like white oleander. I know we were saying oleander grows there. Like that's like a freaking poison. Like you die from that. So I mean, lucky for him. He also would hunt. He would eat plant roots and then he would hunt snakes and lizards and beetles for food. So by the eighth day of his disappearance, he actually comes across an oasis and it has a puddle of water. Oh my gosh. So he gulps down a couple gulps of the puddle of water. Mm -hmm. The problem is though that his throat is so dry and inflamed and swollen from the dehydration and the sand and Mm -hmm. the heat and everything that he vomits the water right back up. Like he won't stay down. So he lays there in the oasis for a little while and just kind of like sips on this puddle of water. Like just kind of like lays there and like... Yeah. Yeah. That just all sounds so terrible. He could have used a straw. Oh. He stayed pretty much there the whole day for a, a few hours. And then the following morning, he fills his water container and with the with the puddle water and keeps walking. And then later that day, he sees goat droppings. And he was like, thank the Lord where there are goat droppings. There's got to be a goat farmer. Right. And he sees a little girl who's tending the goats and he starts running towards her like help help you and know she's like oh my god <laughs> and she's like holy shit um she screams and runs away yes 
and she finds, um, you know, an adult. Uh, he says, she looked at me aghast, screaming in terror. I beseeched her to stop, but she disappeared over a dune. I must be a hideous sight, I thought. I took out my signal mirror and turned it toward my face. I was appalled. I was a skeleton. My eyes had sunk so far back into my skull, I couldn't see them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I imagine if he's a runner. I mean, I haven't seen what he looks like. But if he's some, like, pentathon runner. Yeah. Oh, he's very fit. He's got to like, be, thinner. like, yeah. Like, yeah. real serious runners are pretty thin. Yeah. Yeah. He, he already has a slight build. Yes. Yeah, he's not bulky. They're lean, for sure. Yeah. So she comes back with her grandmother, and they take her to a Berber tent. So the people are called um, Tuareg. Um, that's the people's that he stumbles upon and they have a camp and they're one of the folks who do uh, goat herding. Uh, And so there's a bunch of women in the tent and they give him mint tea and a cup of goat's milk. They're trying to give him food, you know, and he like cannot eat it. I mean, he tries, but it's like not happening. He throws it up. Can you imagine? They're like, eat this goat. Here's a goat's head. And he's like, (laughs) (laughs) nope. So they put him onto a camel for a few hours and then they took him to the nearest village. Then they turned him over to a military patrol. So this account is from a different article. In the Netflix documentary, he says that uh, he kind of skips over that part. But basically, when he gets turned over to the military, they blindfold him. What? And they interrogate him. They transport him to like a military base and interrogate him because they're like, you must be a spy. Right. A Moroccan spy. Like you're, yeah. Right? And he's like, no, I'm Italiano. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, and, and actually during all of this time, his friend Giovanni had gone back home to Italy, talked to um, Mauro's wife. He's like, I'm so, so, you know, like this is going on. And then he flew back to Morocco mm-hmm. to try and help the, the whole thing. But it's like the news was going crazy. Like, they're like, this Italian guy got lost in the desert. He's definitely dead. Like, people are uh, harassing his wife. Like, all these... Um, Wait, he was out there for eight days. Yeah. But the race... I think total it ends up being like 10. But the race goes for six days? Six days. Okay. Giovanni finished the race a couple days later. Like, he finished the race... I think the most is it's six days, but you can finish it before six okay. days, right? Because okay. it's a race. Giovanni finishes, I think it's on like day five. Mm-hmm. And that's like two days after, right? Because day three, they're together. Day four, they're running on the 53 miles. He gets lost. So he's been there one, two, three days. Day four, he gets lost. And then another one, two, three, four, five six days because mm. so i'm pretty sure it's 10 that he until he's found wow yeah okay no i was just thinking if it took six days and then he flew back to italy talked to the wife and you know what i mean mm-hmm. i was like trying to figure out yeah i think he f- so he finishes realizes he's not there goes home gets back on the plane mm-hmm. i guess almost immediately comes back to try and help search and at this point they're just looking they're doing like a uh, recovery like, there's no more rescue involved. Oh, wow. Right? Because they're like, oh, he's dead. Right. And like I said, there are all these journalists, like, following Chinsa around, like, trying to interview her. And it's just, like, crazy. Like, and she keeps trying to tell them, like, listen, he's a super positive person. He's, like, very athletic. He's very smart. I'm sure mm-hmm. he will figure it out. Like, she's like, please stop saying that he's dead. Like, she's still kind of holding out hope. Even though in the back of her mind, she's like, I freaking told you so. Right. But yeah, look how resourceful he is. She knew it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's like, whatever, he'll be fine. Mm -hmm. He, like I said, was turned over to this military thing. He's interrogated, blindfolded, all this crap. 
They realize who he is. They're like, oh, he's that dude from the race. They put him in a hospital. They're like, he's not a spy. It's all good. They put, put <laughs> like, oh, sorry. Ha ha ha. <laughs> sorry about that waterboarding. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. We don't need to tell anybody about that. Do we? <laughs> Uh, so they take him to a hospital in Tindorf. So actually, he had wandered about 180 miles off course. And what? Yeah. 180 miles? Off course. And he was in Algeria. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's like, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. That is far. It's very far. He was at the infirmary for some things say seven days, some things say 10 days. Mm -hmm. But in that time, he finally calls his wife, you know, like they get him a phone. (laughs) And he calls and his mother in law answers the phone. And she's like, Oh, my God, you know, Mauro, is that you Mauro? (laughs) And he's like, you were right. You were. And, you know, she throws the phone over to her daughter and Chinsa gets on the phone, Chinsia, and she's like, hello. And he's like, (laughs) Did you already plan my funeral? I'm not dead. Of course, that's the first thing he says. Not like, oh my God, you know, I'm alive. But like. And she's like, yeah, I mean, no, no. <laughs> she's like, no, 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 no. Anyway, and then there's this kind of a cute part of the story in the Netflix thing where it's like the mother-in-law goes out into the village in her robe and she's like, he's found, you know, and then everyone <laughs> like comes out of their houses and they ring the they're church like, bells oh. and they're like, yeah. It's like a movie. Yeah. So searchers did actually come across the the marabout uh, and they saw like his note and the little italian flag and the bat stuff <laughs> uh, the bat graveyard <laughs> bat graveyard but they still even though they saw that he was like obviously there and like things mm-hmm. had happened and he was still alive however many days later they really did think he was dead so it was like they you know they kind of account in some of this that they were searching for him but Mostly everybody had given up hope. Mm-hmm. The doctors say he lost uh, someplace between 33 and 35 pounds. He needed 16 liters of intravenous fluids to replenish his water loss. Oh, my gosh. He suffered damage to his liver, and that uh, caused issues with him digesting food. And so he had to eat soup and liquids and food that was ground up by a blender for many months. He had severe leg cramps. For over a year, and his kidneys experienced permanent damage. That's really kind of sad. Yeah. Um, And it actually took him about two years to fully recover. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So So he, well, so the last story with the guy in the Australian, what's his name? Outback. Bob, Ricky. (laughs) Ricky Ricky Bobby. (laughs) Ricky Bobby. So in the last, the last (laughs) one, the Australian Ricky, Ricky Bobby McGee, he did okay. He was emaciated Mm -hmm. but he did okay because he had water right i mean i'm pretty sure that all these issues with his kidneys and his liver it's no i mean drinking your own urine drinking your own urine yeah like you can't filter out all that crap that's in there yeah so after he was in that algerian hospital um and he was good enough to get on the plane they sent him home and he was reunited with his family and all of the newspapers and television reporters were like this is a miracle you know so they did alter some of the regulations for the marathon de sable had a heavier and larger distress flare Mm, yes yes the markers along the trail were i think increased and then like better markers right he has actually gone back to the marathon de Saab six more times <gasps> and the highest place he ever got was 13th and that was in 2001 wow 
So he was, so it would have been... 1994, six, he was... Seven years later. Yeah. He was 39, so he'd been like 46. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um. So he said... Once he starts something, he wants to finish it. Uh, He also has expressed his love for the desert, saying he is drawn to experiencing it every year, that sport and nature are significant parts of his life, and that these races allow him to experience those aspects firsthand. He says, I feel a connection there. This is about the desert. I love the clarity. And you see, the Sahara spared my life. Those days in the desert were my happiest. Really? That's unexpected. Yeah. Considering he attempted suicide. suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but maybe that's what it was, is it brought him to his lowest and then to his right. highest or his it's, best. It's funny you should say that his wife in the documentary is like, people were calling him resilient, but she wouldn't describe him as being resilient because when you're resilient, you fall and you bounce back up. But he never actually falls. Oh. Like just a real lucky bastard. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the way she's saying it. but Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess. But he was unlucky to be yeah. in that situation, whereas the rest of the competitors made it back. Made it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of a weird part of this story is that there are some people who say that he made it all up. So there's one side hmm. uh, of the story. People are like, they call him the Robinson Caruso of the Sahara. Um, and he was celebrated. I mean, people in Italy are like, you're a fucking badass, you know, mm-hmm. so amazing, very happy. And then there are other people like some sports physiologists that have questioned the medical viability of his account. So some of them think that he staged the occurrence to gain fame. And actually, in 1998, the Marathon de Sable founder, Patrick Bauer, told Men's Journal that Mauro's story was a fabrication. What? Quote, don't listen to Mr. Prosperi. His story is a fabrication. He will have you believe he is Superman. It is physiologically impossible for a man to travel more than 200 kilometers in the desert without water. This is a supernatural act. Mm. It's possible that he got genuinely lost for a few days, but all the rest rings false. We believe that early on he was picked up by someone and then he decided to hide out for a while. He thought he could make a killing out of this if he prolonged his ordeal. He thought he could sell his story to the tabloids. He aspired to be the star of his own movie. Wow, that's harsh. Yeah. And from the like creator of that. That's hardcore. Who himself was in the desert for 12 Mm -hmm. days. But again, I want to know what his story is. Right. Me too. After that story came out, Mauro thought about suing him mm-hmm. for like defamation of character, essentially. Uh, but ended up he was, you know, he also thought about suing Bauer for the poorly marked trail uh, for across the desert yeah. that he got lost on. And uh, that's really crappy flares. Yeah, really crappy flares. But I guess there was never a prosecution that happened. Mauro thought like, this is kind of stupid. I don't want to bring this into like a legal matter. It's more of like a personal thing like he's like personally attacking me and I don't really want to take it to the courts yeah you know the American in me is like oh because you're lying (laughs) and then you know the regular person in me is like yeah it's just not worth your time also it's interesting that it was 1998 that Bauer said this about Mauro he was still running the race through 
No, I think he's right. I think he just, maybe that guy was just kind of that way. Right. Yeah. You know? And he's yeah. like, well, that's just, like, that's just like your opinion, man. Yeah, exactly. So in 1995, there was a Roman film crew who actually reenacted or retraced uh, the whole deal for a documentary of uh, Mauro Prosperi's uh, survival. And they found the Marabout Shrine and discovered some of his possessions and then a bunch of bat skeletons also. Yeah, so he, yeah. it was, it's real. It's, it's real. Yeah. There was a National Geographic Channel documentary entitled Expeditions to the Edge, Sahara Nightmare. Uh, like I said, the 2019 Netflix series Losers, episode five called Lost in the Desert. And then in 2015, 20th Century Fox broadcast a promotional campaign. Part of that was about his story and it was in support of the movie The Revenant. Oh, did you ever watch that? I never did watch it. I know the story, yeah. but I didn't watch the movie. I have seen the preview, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 15 times. Mm-hmm. And I can't bring myself to watch it. Yeah. There's something about it that's like, it's too real or something. Yeah, we should watch it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's- kind of like how I feel about Dances, Dances with Wolves. Like, I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won't watch it very often, like maybe have, once every five years. Or I haven't something. watched it since it was Kevin Costner. He's so amazing. Um, he did write a book in 2020. He published it. It is written in Italian and he wrote it alongside his former wife, mm-hmm. Cinza Pagliara. Oh. Uh, and it is entitled Those 10 Days Beyond Life. So yes, they did get a divorce, but they still remain really good friends. Uh, basically, she was like, his lifestyle is not that of a husband or a father like, he's still a good father, you know, yeah. when you go look at his Instagram, it's like, you know, his family, kids, all that stuff. But um, it's just not really the life that he's very good at. And so they amicably divorced. Yeah. That was kind of the end of their story. Aww. The Marathon de Sable is a very different experience today. There are upwards of 1300 participants, basically like running in a giant snake. Okay. So it's way less, like, you know, when there's only like 80 people, you can get real spread out. But with mm-hmm. 1,300, it's like you're going to see people along the yeah, trail. Yeah, there's no risk of getting lost. And actually, there have only been two people who died um, on this marathon. That's that's not bad, considering. Yeah, not bad. Exactly. All right. And that's my story of Mauro <laughs> Prosperi. I had never heard of that story. That's a really crazy story. No, I really haven't. That's great. I don't know that story. If I ever did hear of it, it didn't stick. I mean, I don't want to be stranded anywhere where I need to survive, but I feel like the desert would be a real tough one. If you don't have water, you know, you're pretty screwed. Yeah. Yeah. He still runs all the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, I hope you're drinking enough water. Well, and it sounds like his his kidneys never recovered fully. Right. So I'm sure that's something he has to really take into account and take care of. But but yeah, good story, Megan. Thank you very, very much. Interesting. Don't get lost in the desert and have giant flares if you're going to go running 200 miles through the desert. Or maybe just don't run 200 miles through the desert. Because why? Because why? Exactly. No, I mean, I know people like challenge. I mean, there's people out there that are like, no, it's a challenge. It's good. Do it. If that's your thing, like, just go for it. I, I love the races and the, you know, push people pushing themselves. But that's a lot. Yeah. That's extreme. A thawning. Hey, Megan. 
What's up, Jen? Let's talk about straws. These handy dandy little suckers are now part of our everyday life. Mm-hmm. They come with our drinks everywhere we go. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. We go to restaurants. Mm-hmm. They just like throw them at you. Use it one time and then we mm-hmm. just throw them in the trash. I think most folks out there just don't really think about it anymore. But did you know, Jen, if you line straws up end to end, the plastic straws used in the U.S. in one day would wrap around the earth two and a half times. That's 500 million straws per day and just in the United States. Well, we've all seen the turtle rescue video, Mm. haven't we? I've seen it. I work with turtles and I saw that straw jammed right up its nose. I really thought that's just some bad luck. So I looked it up some more and the real issue for marine life and wildlife life in general is that plastic straws break down into smaller pieces known as microplastics. Bad news because animals just gulp it down and then they get it all jammed up in their system and they can't survive. Some estimates suggest that at least 100 million marine mammals like whales, dolphins, seals, and sea lions are killed each year from plastic pollution. Sadly, sea turtles and seabirds are most likely to be affected by the plastic waste. Since straws are single-use, lightweight, and made from polypropylene, they are not easily recycled and degrade slowly. So why don't they recycle? Well, Jen, most plastic straws are too lightweight to make it through the mechanical recycling sorter. They drop through the sorting screens and mix with other materials and are too small to separate, contaminating recycling loads or getting disposed of as garbage. All right, so now we know all the bad stuff. So here it is, and this is how you can make a difference. Go reusable with Steal My Straws. Steal My Straws makes adorable reusable straws made of high-grade rounded stainless steel that lasts you a lifetime and helps you commit to a zero-waste lifestyle. Better yet, a percentage of the proceeds from every sale is donated to ocean conservation initiatives. Steal My Straws has everything from stainless steel straws to foldable silicone straws to bamboo straws to cutlery in all cool colors and styles. They even have cute little stainless steel bendy straws, which I didn't even know that was possible. Take your steal my straws with you everywhere you go so you can be super cool and tell the server, um, I brought my own straw and just saved a sea turtle. Thank you. To order, simply go to our sponsor page at you're gonna die out there.com and click the link. Enter the coupon code yigdot y-g-d-o-t to receive 10% off your order. Awesome. You're on your way to making a difference, nature nerds, and you've made us so proud. So yeah, Jen, uh, the organization that I would like to support for this uh, episode mm-hmm. is the MDS, the Marathon de Sal Solidarity, an organization team that encourages running for a cause and has always worked on setting up projects in partnership with other associations. So they do things like install solar pumps, provide and distribute school materials to isolated villages, developing or building toilet blocks and solar heated showers at the schools. Nice. There's like an artisanal complex for women. Yeah, they work in kindergartens, uh, dispensaries, communities, all that stuff in Morocco. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It's on their website, marathondesable.com. That's marathon, D-E-S-S-A-B-L-E-S.com. Cool. And we'll add it to our page. Yeah, absolutely. Once it's up. So you can check it out from there or from the um, episode links. All right, Jen, let's talk about the emergency preparedness kit. Are you ready? I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) I think the most disturbing part about the whole story was the biting the heads off these innocent little bats. Yeah. Especially at the beginning of the story, my science news was about bats. (laughs) And we, uh, I didn't know that there was going to be this mutilation, mutilation of bats. Yeah. I mean, you know, it helped him live and I'm okay Mm -hmm. with it. I'm Mm -hmm. totally okay with it. Yeah. 
But I'm just saying, that's I'm, hardcore. I mean, he buried them too, so it made yeah, he, I mean, he felt bad. But you got to do what you got to do, I suppose. You know, one of the things I mentioned in my science news was how bats carry every single virus known to man, right? Like Ebola and coronavirus, right. <laughs> <laughs> all the things, all the things, rabies, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think in my preparedness kit. Just so, just in case, I would have a slew of inoculations. That's smart. Lined up for everything. Just ready to go. Ready to go. I mean, I've already had my vaccinations for coronavirus, so I feel okay with that one. Yes. But, you know, for all the other things. Because I feel feel like by the time they found him, he would have just been like some sort of Ebola (laughs) victim or zombie. Patient zero. Yes. Or something. For something. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's lucky that these bats weren't carrying anything. They were just chilling. I like that. Just a a kit full of needles with inoculations in it. Yes. So I don't know what we would call that, but your inoculation kit. You know, I was I was thinking back to the fact that you did a desert story last week. And it's a totally different story and so interesting. Yeah. He, he eats raw bat. Yeah. And your guy. And drank- he drank a lot more urine than my guy. Just So I think now we know you can't he, drink that right, much urine. You can't drink that. <laughs> Question answered. Probably only one time. Yeah. Well, I mean, not even one. It's like meth. Not even once. <laughs> not even what? Don't even. I guess unless when you're... when you're that thirsty. Yeah. Your guy had tastier, probably urine, because he had his sweaty underwear. He squeezed it out from his rancid, sweaty underwears. I just keep thinking about that. I think, that. like, how many days was he wearing those at that oh, point? Oh, God. And I just mean, sweating it out. He might have, like, mm-mm. gotten scared and squirted a little. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, he did get, like, Some extra mobbed is this true mobbed <laughs> he got he got uh yeah mob. Wait, what is it mugged? called mugged <laughs> mobbed like, mob. whatever but yeah and he was like thrown in the ground in a ditch left for dead well it- i'm just saying my underwear would not be too keen by yeah. oh. especially by day like three or four jesus <laughs> <laughs> Man. Yeah. So yeah, he had the hot lemonade. <laughs> hot sweaty lemonade. <laughs> All right. So great. Inocu- uh, a set of needles with inoculations. That's wonderful. Let's add it to the kit. Done. Yeah. So Jen, let's talk about our contest winners. What? This it's the moment you've been waiting for. So exciting. I love that we actually had some contestants. Well, yes. I mean, it wasn't like a ton, but right. we were super happy and we, we appreciate it. We might have been exaggerating a million yeah it in was, the beginning it was a years. slight exam I mean, it was just a little it was a little off what we did was we took the names and mm-hmm. we used a random number generator we had three prizes we have the first prize which was a hoodie what? a you're gonna die out there hoodie second yes. prize is a you're gonna die out there t-shirt yes and the third prize was a tote a organic nice. tote nice which you guys tote. might have actually seen on our merch page the winner of the you're gonna die out there organic tote is Oh, wait, I'm saying the name. Yeah, you're saying the name. Oh, Noah. Yay, Noah. Thank you for your review. We loved it so much. Our second our second contest winner who will be receiving the You're Gonna Die Out There t-shirt is... Christine. Yay. Yay, Christine. (laughs) That's so exciting. Thank you so much for reviewing our podcast. And subscribing. And subscribing. Yes, it means a lot. Grand prize winner. And the winner... The sweet hoodie. A you're gonna do out there hoodie. And they are really sweet. So I have one. It is super comfy. Is 
Carly! Carly! Yay! Congratulations! <laughs> We're over here raising our hands for you. Yes. In the We're doing air. like a happy dance. My dog's looking at me. They think we're weird. Yes. Uh, so yeah, congratulations to our three winners. And we're going to be contacting you for your uh, address if we haven't already. We hope to see some photos of your sweet, sweet merch. And let us know if we can post it. Yes. Uh, the other thing is, is I think this summer we're going to have another contest and giveaway. So yes, definitely. anybody who wasn't able to get into this one, just let us know. Oh, and can I just know one more thing, Megan? What, what, what? We had the most amazing review. And remember we said... Um, if somebody gave us a review oh, in the right. form of a haiku, yes, that we would do two send stickers. two stickers. The name on the review is Maxine Ride. Mm-hmm. If you are listening right now, could you please email us at you're gonna die out there at gmail.com. Give us your address so we can mail you some stickers. And thank you so much. They gave us a haiku review and it was amazing. I love when people have so much ingenuity and creativity. Yes. Haikus are the best. And that was, I smiled a lot. Yes. Reading it. So it was great. And if you did leave us a review, we have another one on there. If you want a sticker, send us an email because nice. we have some sweet stickers. Um, anybody who entered and that is going to also get a sticker. We appreciate your subscribe rate and review because it helps us grow. Let's talk about our Patreon. So we have some new patrons. Thank you very much, patrons. For all of our patrons, we'd like to give a shout out. So we just want to say thank you to Kat. We appreciate you. We also want to say thank you to Julie. Thank you so much, Julie. Uh, we uh, we would also like to extend a very warm thank you to Mr. Colin. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate you. Um, a big thanks to Christine, who Woo-hoo! was actually also one of our winners. Yeah. Congratulations. Yes. And thank you so much, Christine. Yes. And then our last patron we'd like to shout out is Mel. Mel, thank you so much. We, we appreciate, appreciate it. you. Cool. So if we have any new patrons, we'll give you a shout out at the end. If for some reason you don't want us to, just let us know. Yep. And we won't do it. Yeah. So but just knowing our, our brains, we're sending you a shout out. So yeah, if you're interested in also becoming a patron, Please check us out on our website. We have bonus episodes once a month and that is something that is not out on our regular um, platforms Mm -hmm. and commercial free regular episodes that come out a little bit earlier so feel free to be a patron because it's super cool and you'll get a percentage off merch which actually good thing you brought up merch jen because we recently found out well we're having some issues with uh the payment side and the only way that you can make payment right now if you're looking to get merch is through paypal so just a heads up on that, that if you don't have a PayPal account already, you might have to create one to purchase merch. We're sorry. We're trying to work on it to see if we can get some other forms of payment on there. But because we're located in Guam, it makes it a little bit weird for those companies. <laughs> I just don't get it. We're not trying to like scam anybody. We're just trying to like, sell Guam some Guam is a real place. It's real. It's real. And it's it uses the U.S. The postal US. service. Thank you. I so mean, I we just don't get it. We talk about this all the time yeah. to each other. It's basically like shipping to California. Just goes a little bit further on the plane. Exactly. Or the crosses boat. the <laughs> international date line and gets really jet lagged. <laughs> super jet <jealous. laughs> so but, yeah sorry about that but please check it out i'm going to mm-hmm. be adding some more merch it'll be up by the end of may cool thanks jen oh yeah oh and you mentioned something about paypal has something where you can donate like a dollar of something oh yeah so right. one thing that's kind of cool i noticed paypal is doing not that we promote paypal right but if they wanted to sponsor us it's totally fine <laughs> but um i noticed that they when you 
purchase something at the end, it gives you the option to donate a dollar to the National Park Foundation. Mm-hmm. Or I saw another one for Nature Conservancy. So that's kind of cool. Very cool. I feel like that is in line with uh, what we're into. One dollar. It's like when you go to CVS. It's just a cup or of something. coffee, but not anymore. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what kind of crappy coffee <laughs> right. that would be, but I don't want it. Oh, man. All right. Well, those are all the things. Thank you so much for listening. Kind of a long episode. We had a lot of corrections and stuff to tell you guys about. We hope you enjoyed it. Oh, wait. So I I wanted to also give a shout out to Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon. Oh, yeah. Because we love Lyndon. He's great. And I love that he says, and it says it on his bio, I think, on Instagram. Uh It says it's like a no waffle, no frills. (laughs) <laughs> and I remember seeing that. I was like, waffles? I love waffles. What are you talking about? What's a waffle? And he really meant just no random rambling and talking right. banter. What? Which That's crazy. We don't do that. <laughs> so anyway, I just loved it. And I thought he was great. I listened to him. He has like 20 minute episodes. Literally, you could just like when you're going to go to sleep. And then... Yeah. And then at the end, he ha- he might talk about a couple of other things. He might waffle mm-hmm. a bit. And he has a great sounding voice. Yeah. So you guys look for that. Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon. So yeah, if you have a chance and you're looking for a new true crime podcast that's short and but very well researched and fun to listen to, mm-hmm. I know you're going to love it. So check it out. Yeah. And we're it's just, it's just like a random plug for Lyndon because we thought he was a cool guy. You know, Lyndon, we waffle. We waffled all the day long. Man, there's so many waffles in this episode. piled up. Out of control. Yes. We waffled all the way through. Grab your syrup. (laughs) That was good, Megan. So with that, we appreciate you listening and Mm -hmm. getting through all of our waffles. And until then. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.